Good evening. I'm Sandy Unger, president of Goucher, as most of you know. And uh, we're continuing tonight our series of programs in which we're talking about matters related to the presidential election and to American politics uh, this year and beyond. And we're really delighted to have our friend Elliot Cutler with us tonight. Beth and I have known him for a very long time. And uh, he is, uh, was almost elected governor of Maine as an independent candidate in 2010, and rumor has it he might run again in 2014. Uh, tell you a little bit about Elliot. He is a real Mainer, not an opportunistic Mainer, but a real one, born in Bangor. And uh, after graduating from Harvard College and Georgetown Law School, he worked in uh, D.C. initially for the late Senator Edmund Muskie from Maine. And uh, he, Elliot, I'm told, helped craft the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, National Environmental Policy Act and other important environmental laws. He worked on uh, Senator Muskie's presidential campaign, I believe, for, at, uh, and then, and then became uh, a key official in the uh, Federal Office of Management and Budget during the administration of President Jimmy Carter. Um, Elliot uh, helped found a law firm called Cutler and Stanfield which uh, grew to be the second largest environmental law firm in the country. And uh, he has traveled widely. He has transcended many boundaries, which Goucher students understand the significance of. That was the theme of our capital campaign and our strategic plan. Yes, well, we use that phrase often. I'll bet you do. <laughs> and uh, he lived in Beijing for the law firm that eventually merged with his uh, from 2006 to 2009 and uh, uh, had a, a, a distinguished their career there as well. <clears throat> then ran for governor in 2010, got 36.3% of the vote, and uh, nearly got elected, but someone else is now governor of Maine, and making it easier, perhaps, to run <laughs> next time on the base of his record. So uh, another, some more Mainers coming in, recent, recent alumni from Maine. Uh, it's not often that we can provide a uh, speaker for our very large main constituency at, at Goucher as, as directly related to them as, as tonight. Elliot's going to talk about, his, his theme is uh, the parties are over and why that's good for America. And uh, we'll have, hear from Elliot and then uh, maybe he and I will have a little conversation. We'll take questions from the audience, of course, Goucher students and alumni first. Thank Elliot. You. Thank you. S Sandy and Beth and I really are uh, old friends. We're, we're friends and we're old. <laughs> uh, what Sandy didn't tell you is, is that I have a, a very personal connection to Goucher uh, in that my daughter converted here from a Mandarin-speaking journalist to a medical student. Uh, and I'm told via her from Shai that I have very big shoes to fill at Goucher. She loved Goucher. And it, it, she's been a very, very successful medical student for which she and her mother and I are all very grateful to this great college. Uh, and to all of you who 
may have taught her. So thank you. Maine is a very special place. Those of you who grew up in Maine or who visit Maine know that. Some of us, perhaps many of us here, think that it's the most special place in America. Right, Morgan? Right. On every morning of every day, when the sun rises over the state of Maine, we greet the dawn of that day before anyone else in America. The jagged shape of our coastline, which is 3,500 miles in length, 5,500 miles when you count all the islands. Our jagged coastline is longer than any other state and longer, in fact, than the entire Pacific coast of the United States. 90% of our land is in forest. That's almost 18 million acres, and it's the most densely forested state in America. And we're alone up there in the Northeast. We're surrounded by three Canadian provinces, and we're the only state in America that shares a border with only one other state. And to boot, if you're into trivia, and you want to stump either your children or your parents, you can ask them whether, whether they can name the states of the United States that have only one syllable in their name. And we're it. <laughs> because our air is crisp and clean, we think that we see more clearly than the citizens of other states. And perhaps because we have to, we know that we think more clearly. And notwithstanding our small population, there are only a million three hundred thousand of us, Maine has made a political mark on America of some note. For decades, we've batted above our weight in Washington. We have sent to the Senate, just in the last 50 or so years, Margaret Chase Smith, Edmund S. Muskie, William S. Cohen, George Mitchell, Olympia Snow, Susan Collins. And it's hard to find another state in America that has that kind of record. We're about to do that again because we're going to elect to the Senate in two weeks from yesterday a true independent, former Governor Angus King. And in recent decades, Maine has become a veritable hotbed of successful independent politics. Had I been elected in 2010, I would have been the third independent governor in the last six in Maine. It's that independence and individualism. I mean, Maine's the only state in America where you can find a lobsterman who quotes Thucydides as he's hauling traps. That independence and individualism, together with the demands of our environment and our geography, lead us politically in the direction of clear-eyed, clear-thinking problem solvers. We're very practical. And so we're looking for men and women in our politics who are unburdened by ideology and unbeholden to political parties. Because in Maine, we have to be adaptive and resilient to stay alive. So as a consequence, Maine's often the first state or among the first states to set the national agenda. Dirigo, Latin for I lead, is our state motto. And we try to live up to it. This year, with Angus King's election to the United States Senate and 
I hope and trust and believe we, and maybe along with Maryland, will be the first state or states in America to enact the marriage equality, to enact marriage equality by popular vote into our laws. Now, sometimes we lead in the wrong direction. We did that with prohibition in the 1920s. That was born in Maine. And certainly in the election two years ago when we elected my opponent. <laughs> Tonight, uh, I want to share with you some of the concerns and some of the thoughts that have brought Maine to the leading edge of a growing movement in America that is turning away from hyperpartisan politics. Throughout my 2010 campaign and on virtually every day since then, voters in Maine have told me over and over again that in one form or another they share two profoundly important convictions about Maine and by extension about America. First, they tell me that they know, we know, that our people and our resources have the capacity to make our state not only the state where everyone wants to live, but also a state where everyone can make a living. But, and it's a big but, at the same time, they don't want to hear that we have to sacrifice our values in order to do this. Maine's a special place not only because it's the most beautiful place God ever created, but also because of our sense of community, our history of local decision-making in town meetings, our commitment to shared enterprise, and to the responsibility that most of us feel for our fellow citizens. At the same time, many of them, many of us, in Maine and in America, share misgivings about the course of our democracy. We're increasingly convinced that our political process is failing us, making it impossible for us to make the important fixes that our economy and our society require. Political hyperpartisanship and the excesses of money in politics have fed upon and reinforced each other, breeding bitter division and legislative paralysis in Washington, D.C., in our capital of Augusta, and in other state capitals all over America. With the unaccountable and nearly naive, in my view, blessings of the United States Supreme Court, this cancer has invaded our body politic by masquerading as freedom of speech while distorting our democracy, snuffing out civil dialogue, strangling our economy, and deepening divisions and inequities among us. Those are the reasons why increasing numbers of us in Maine and Maryland and across America are devoting ourselves and our energies to a new generation of political reform. A recent NBC News and Wall Street Journal poll found that 22% of American voters consider themselves to be liberals. 34% consider themselves to be conservatives and 41% consider themselves to be moderates. Not that long ago, the Senate of the United States looked that way too. There was a big overlapping pool of moderates in the middle. There were Republicans like Barry Goldwater and Jacob Javits. There were Democrats like 
Jim Eastland and John Stennis and John Pastore and Warren Magnuson. You had people in both parties on both ends of the spectrum and in the middle. And the Senate worked well in those days. People worked together, solved problems, bills were passed. It was extraordinary in light of today's problems. Today, according to recent analysis, the Senate is as divided as it almost ever has been. There are only nine members who can be considered moderates, and at least three of them are leaving, including Maine's own Olympia Snow. More importantly, all of the conservatives are Republicans, and all of the liberals are Democrats. It's no wonder that they can't accomplish anything. And were it not for the fact that we face such enormous challenges as a nation, this gridlock could be dismissed with sort of a this too shall pass wave of our hands, but we can't do that because it's not passing, the crisis is real, it's getting worse, and the dimensions of that crisis, to me at least, are compelling. First, I'm going to tell you three. First, measured by jobs and employment, this recession has been long and deep, and by measures that affect most Americans, it's not over. The national unemployment rate, at least for now, appears to have resumed a modest decline, even though Maine's rate has been edging up throughout 2012. Ours is now higher than it was in January. But America has millions fewer jobs than when the recession began over four years ago, and the underemployment rate, the underemployment rate, which is the true rate that reflects people who have stopped looking for work and part-time workers who want full-time jobs, the underemployment rate is between 15 and 20 percent, and among some population groups, it's much, much higher. In Maine, we've lost 1,600 jobs since January of 2011, and in Maine, we have roughly the same number of jobs today as we did in October of 1999. Too few Americans are working, and too many Americans are less capable of working because they don't have the education and the skill sets they need to get a job. On the other hand, Productivity in America is way up, way up since 2000. Making American companies more competitive, yes. Average profit margins at major American corporations are now hovering near 13%, which is a 50-year high. And the stock market, for those of us who can invest in it, has been buoyant. The problem is this. As machines get smarter, and people don't. American companies are hiring fewer and fewer people. The next time you hear anyone tell you that the key to raising employment levels in America is to increase profit levels at American corporations, clue them into this fact. Since the end of the recession in June of 2009. The software industry, well, corporate spending on equipment and software generally, has increased by 26% and payrolls are perfectly flat. Big corporations are making more money, 
but they're doing it with machines and not with people. Second, the economic divide that separates a few of us from most of us has become a wider, deeper, and ever more threatening chasm. It is not class warfare. It is not class warfare to observe that 400 people in the United States today control more wealth than the poorest 150 million of us combined. That's never been said about America before. In 2007, those 400 earners earned an average of $340 million each. And in 2009, six of them paid no income tax at all, and 27 of them paid rates of 10% or less. And I can't tell you whether that includes the Republican candidate for president. The uncomfortable truth is that more Americans, numbering around 40 million, live desperate lives of real grinding poverty than at any time since statistics were gathered on that fact in America. In Maine, that number includes 12.5% of us, one out of every eight of my neighbors. Historically, Maine's and America's middle class was the most productive in the world, was able for decades to support programs that provide assistance for those less fortunate. But today, the middle class just can't step up to that plate anymore. It has been hopelessly squeezed by the technology revolution, by the rising costs of health care and education, except, of course, here at Goucher, and by the seeming inability of our local, state, and national governments to reform taxation systems that are overly complex, unfair, and inefficient. And too often, as Peter Orzag and others have pointed out, public policy exacerbates, instead of mitigates, these trends. Take the Wall Street rescue in 2008. Christia Freeland noted in the New York Times earlier this month, and I urge you all to read this article, which compared Venice and the United States, if you missed it. Old Venice. She observed that 93% of the income gains from the 2009-2010 recovery went to the top 1% of America's taxpayers. 93% of the income gains went to the top 1%. Indeed, the top 1% of the top 1% captured more than one-third of these additional earnings to the tune of $4.2 million per household on average. So we're creating wealth in America, but we sure as hell aren't sharing it the way we once did. Third, we've lost trust in our government and we've lost faith in each other. Many of those who have the money to do so are literally taking over our political system, alienating more and more Americans from it and discouraging participation in it. The Supreme Court's decision in the Citizens United case at once opened the floodgates to billions of dollars in hidden political spending and at the same time largely foreclosed most Americans from effective participation in their own democracy. That case essentially stands for the propositions 
First, that corporations are citizens with First Amendment rights. And second, that unregulated spending, and this is the key point for Justice Kennedy, who wrote the deciding opinion, unregulated spending by undisclosed corporations and individuals will pose no significant danger to our political process. You'd think the justices were living on another planet. Really. My two favorite bumper stickers in the last 24 months are these. Would you let your daughter marry a corporation? <laughs> and the other, which I think is the best, if corporations are people, when is Texas going to execute an oil company? <laughs> the fact is that the sheer force of money in politics today is corrosive. And it's corroding not only politics, but capitalism and civil society. As a result of the Citizens United decision, much, much more of the spending and political campaigns today comes from anonymous, outside, non-candidate, non-party sources. And most of it pays for vicious, negative advertising that contributes nothing, absolutely nothing, to the sort of civic dialogue that the world's longest-lasting democracy has a right to expect. In Maine this year, the campaigns of the three major candidates for the Senate, the independent Angus King, the Democrat uh, uh, Cynthia Dill, and the Republican Charlie Summers, will be outspent by outside groups by a factor of three to four. Three to four times as much money is being spent in Maine by unrelated, unregulated, anonymous outside groups than is being spent by the candidates themselves. And most of that outside advertising has been and will be anonymous and negative. But I submit to you that the most dangerous impact of the Citizens United decision is neither the anonymity and negativity of the attack ads, nor the diminished and increasingly uncivil dialogue, but rather what it has done to our political parties and to our legislatures. It has made the parties small and narrow and highly partisan and it has turned the Congress into a parliament where members always vote the party line and where compromise has become a dirty word. Why did this happen? Well, when Jesse James was asked why he robbed banks, he said that's where the money is. And money has had the same effect on our political parties. Corporations, unions, and incredibly wealthy individuals have found that their money can wield enormous, unregulated, and anonymous influence in the post-Citizens United world. As a result, more and more political money has become narrow purpose driven, often attached to foolish pledges like Grover Norquist's, and pursuing ideological agendas that have reshaped the political parties and narrowed the ground on which they stand. Jesse Unruh, who was a great an accomplished speaker of the California House, once said that money is the mother's milk of politics. And he's right, it is. And the political party's desperate need for it has made them increasingly dependent on those who can supply gobs and gobs of it. And, naturally, increasingly reflective of the narrow ideologies and requirements for uniformity that are imposed by the few who can afford to provide the money. Just look, for example, at the changed complexion of Barack Obama's funding base in 2012 as compared with 2008. 
2008, much, much more of his money came from small donors, the public. Try winning a Republican Party primary if you refuse to take the Norquist no tax pledge. Try winning a Democratic Party primary if you're for education reform and charter schools. Our political parties, once vigorous, broad, and inclusive, have migrated to the money. They've shriveled, they've narrowed, and they've moved further to the right and left sides of our political spectrum. And as they've drifted away from the center, the two parties have defined themselves into silos. They've been trapped by funding sources and ideologies that keep them from bridging the differences between us, which is the only explanation for what's going on in Washington today. With the possible exception of the circumstances that led to the duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, there has never been less trust, less reasoned and civil debate, and less public participation in the political process than we see now. And it's no wonder that increasing numbers of Mainers and Americans have thrown up their hands and walked away from politics. Many of those who were active members of the two parties have jumped ship, myself included. Fewer and fewer Americans call themselves Republicans or Democrats these days. You can drive around the state of Maine and look at the proliferation of thousands and hundreds of thousands of lawn signs all over our state for candidates, for the Senate, for the House of Representatives, for the state legislature. You will, and I've done this, I mean I've driven around the state not just to look at lawn signs. You, you, you cannot find a party identification on a single lawn sign. No one wants to be known as a Democrat or a Republican. No one. As recently as 2008, 40% of registered voters identified themselves as Democrats nationally. That share fell to 30%, 25% decline in three years by 2011. In 2008, 29% called themselves Republicans, but that number had dwindled to 22% three years later. Even fewer people are motivated to vote in the party primaries. The year before I went to work, this is going to tell you how old I am, the year before I went to work for Ed Muskie, in 1966, 21% of all eligible voters in America, not just registered voters, but everyone over the age of 21, registered or not, 21% of them voted in Democratic Party primaries. You know what that number was in 2010? 8%. 8. In Maine this year, the Republican and Democratic Party candidates for the United States Senate, Olympia Snow's seat, were each nominated with about 2.5% of the registered voters in the entire state. 2.5% the population of the town of Sanford, Maine, nominated these two candidates. So voters have become disaffected, and they become disaffected because they're disappointed and because they're disillusioned. In survey after survey, 80 to 90% of the American people think that Congress is doing a great job. No, 80 to 90% think they're doing a lousy job. In one recent poll, only 9% approved of the Congress's performance, its worst rating ever. Now, here's how bad that is. Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan strongman who was just reelected, 
Hugo Chavez has a higher approval rating in America than our own Congress. <laughs> I'm not done. Richard Nixon during Watergate, Sandy remembers this well, Richard Nixon had an approval rating of 24% compared with 9% for the Congress. Lawyers, <laughs> lawyers have a 29% approval rating and the Internal Revenue Service has a 40% approval rating. 10% <laughs> of the American people believe that they can trust the federal government. One out of every 10 of us. It's the lowest level in history. You'd think that millions of Americans who appreciate the value of our democracy and who believe in the promise of America would rally together and rescue our political system from the anachronistic time warp in which it appears to be stuck. But we haven't, at least not yet. Because the political parties have created considerable barriers, defenses against that happening. Their shrinking status notwithstanding, the Democratic and Republican parties still exercise political authority, far out of proportion to, the, to either the allegiance they command from the electorate, which is rapidly declining, or their success in govern, governing, which is quickly eroding. In their primaries and caucuses, even though they're more and more dominated by big money and narrow interests, and even though fewer and fewer of us choose to vote in them, in their primaries and caucuses, Democrats and Republicans still nominate the so-called major candidates from whom we choose in our fall elections. So if you're an independent and you're running for governor, you're called depending on who's calling you names, you're called an interloper, you're called Ralph Nader, you're called a spoiler. That's the mindset that the parties play upon. In the Congress and state legislatures, the parties have enacted rules on legislative procedures, ballot access, campaign finance, on closed primaries and absentee voting that perpetuate their duopoly and to tie the Congress and our legislators up in knots. You have to wonder where the public interest ranks among the political party's priorities. And it certainly would be fair for you, for us, to suspect that playing fields leveled by serious political reforms might, just might, engender better politics and ultimately better government and greater opportunity for more people. Because America's problems, economic and political, are all of a piece. This is all related. Everything I've said tonight is related. A sharply divided, notably uncivil Congress has failed to enact sound and sensible national policies. The policy failures have led to a crushing debt burden, a longer lasting recession than any we've experienced, and deepening divides and inequality and inequities among American people. The deepened divides then reinforce and perpetuate the very brand of politics that's brought deadlock to Congress and has brought most of us to our knees. Okay, so these are our problems to solve, right? Because no one is coming to help us. The Lone Ranger isn't coming. The cavalry's not coming over the hills. This is our democracy, and this is our set of problems that we have to solve. So where do we start? Well, I've suggested to voters in Maine three simple propositions 
and they underpin the independent politics that we know in Maine. First, our future has to be characterized as our past has been by the notion of shared enterprise where burdens and obligations and rewards are fairly shared, where there exist real opportunities for each of us to make the most of our potential, and where there are sufficient incentives that lead most of us to pursue those opportunities. Second, public policy should mitigate rather than exacerbate the most damaging tendencies of our capitalist free enterprise economy. Our free enterprise economy stimulates innovation, creativity, and competition. It makes us strong in those ways. But as we've recently seen, unconstrained excesses can also weaken the fabric of the nation and each of every one of our states. So our government's roles, all of our government's roles, ought to be to reinforce the best elements of our free markets and to compensate for market shortcomings where no other satisfactory mechanism exists to do so. And third, we need to reform our democracy in order to preserve it. Our political system ought to engage us and encourage us by far greater openness to participate in it. We should insist on electoral processes that give us broad and good choices among candidates, choices that don't just appear, appeal to people who live on the left and right of the spectrum, but people, most of us, who occupy the center. An open primary, runoff elections, ranked choice voting, these are improvements that we ought to consider because they do that. Now, the parties won't like it. The political parties won't like any of those reforms. But any one of them would ensure that the ultimate winner of an election is approved by the electorate. We should maintain flexible absentee voting, convenience voting, but there's no reason why it needs to begin as it does now in so many states, six weeks before the election when most voters haven't even begun to pay attention. There's also a civic aspect to casting a vote with your neighbors, to standing in line. And if you don't have to, if you, if you, if you have to be away, or if you're ill, or, or you, fine, absentee voting for a week or two. But you know, the symbolic importance of standing in line and being a part of a democracy reinforces the democracy, and we're giving that up. And all of our electoral and legislating processes should be insulated against the corrosion and corruption bred by uncontrolled and unregulated political money, and if it takes a constitutional amendment to do that, then we need to make that happen. We can sit in our hands, frustrated, continue to disengage from the political process, leaving it to others to use for their own ends, and wring our hands over the failing democracy or we can act. I'm in. I've been in now for three years and I'm in it for as long as I can stand on two feet. I believe that the, I'm certain that the time for reform is right now. I founded One Maine, which is a political home for people, Democrats, Republicans, Greens, Independents, I don't care who you are, I don't care what card you carry in your wallet. If you're more interested in pragmatic solutions than in political partisanship. We don't ask people to check their principles at the door, but it's a place for people who care less about parties and ideologies and more about common interests, solving problems, and shared purpose. We've sponsored a series of demonstration discussions called One Tables, where we bring together 
people from around the state who have different points of view, from the right, from the left, from the middle, about a problem of importance in the state of Maine. And we talk for an hour and a half. And we demonstrate that dialogue can be civil, that we can begin to reach agreement on certain essential points about the problem, that we don't have to be partisan, that we don't have to yell at each other. And it works. And we are demonstrating it around the state of Maine, and people are beginning to catch on. And we're supporting candidates for the state legislature in each of Maine's 16 counties who are committed to bipartisan efforts to solve Maine's problems. And you can visit us if you want at onemain.com or on Facebook. I'm a co-founder and leader in No Labels, which is a national organization that's proposed a set of 12 rules reforms for the Congress, including no budget, no pay. Good idea, right? Go to nolabels.org. These reforms, if they were enacted, would reduce the hyperpartisanship, fix the rules, and the gridlock that plagues the House and the Senate. And with others, I am searching for the best way to overcome the Supreme Court's decision in the Citizens United case and to protect our political process from the scourge of big money because few democracies, if any, have survived amidst the levels of disaffection we see in America today. So there's every reason in the world for all of us to join hands and try to save it. I tell Maine voters that their opportunities for themselves and their children can be, should be brighter than they've ever been. We have in Maine and we have in America all of the resources we need to be as great as we want to be. But if we refuse, only if we refuse to let our future be dimmed by our own inaction can we make the most of those opportunities. So, if you share my confidence and if you share my worries, then take a look at independent politics here in Maryland or wherever you're from, wherever you live, wherever you care about. It's a growing movement. It's going to keep growing. The parties are going to keep shrinking. And ultimately, we all have to take responsibility for our democracy. Thank you very, very much for coming to So, Elliot, I just want to ask you one, uh, you might want to take Does that, that out of Yeah, should. You're going to give me a mic that works? I hope. We bought it, we paid for it, it's ours. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Reagan. That? Yes, I do. Uh, one question uh, I want to ask you before we take questions from the audience is how this happened to Congress. You worked in Congress for uh, quite a few years for Senator Muskie. And... Uh, those may look like the good old days now, but how did it how did it happen that things became so dysfunctional, so partisan? Is there well, is there a moment that made it stuck yeah, on that road? There was no I think there was no particular moment, but if you put this in historical perspective, I said at dinner tonight that that if you go back to the nineteen twenties, there were no majority or minority leaders in the United States Senate at all. There were no caucuses. And if you go back even just to the 1940s, there were four parties represented in the Senate plus two independents. And if you go back to the 60s and 70s, which is the time when I worked in the Senate, Ed Muskie 
wrote the Clean Air Act, which may be one of the most far-reaching statutes enacted in the United States in the 20th century. I mean, it's cost industry billions and billions and billions of dollars, and it's returned trillions of dollars in public health benefits. It's an extraordinary success story. But it's had enormous impact. It's changed our automobile fleet. It's changed our utilities. It's changed everything in America. He held 35 days of hearings on that bill. He had about the same number of days of markup sessions. He took it to the floor and it passed the Senate unanimously. There wasn't a dissenting vote. And, and his ranking member on his subcommittee was Howard Baker from Tennessee, later the Senate Majority Leader and then Chief of Staff to President Reagan. And Baker had to be away the day that the committee report was taken to the Senate floor and he gave Muskie his proxy. You think that had happened today? Never. <laughs> now, why? You know, I think you go back to a number of events in the, in the 70s and then through the 80s and 90s, um, most of it having to do with party reforms in the Democratic Party that, that made the party a much narrower party ultimately than it used to be and changes in the rules governing money. The two parties now respond to ideological sources of money. The, a lot of the Democrats' money comes from labor unions, particularly public employees and teachers. And the Republican, well, you know where the Republican money comes from. And it's all bad. You cannot win a Republican primary if you don't sign Grover Norquist's pledge, and you can't win a Democratic primary if you're like me. Can't. And so what's happened is these parties have become narrower and narrower and narrower and drifted to either side of the spectrum. And, you know, all the Democrats, all the liberals in the Senate are Democrats and all the conservatives are Republicans, and there's this big gulf in between them. That's how it happened. Uh, it's, it's frankly the weakening changed parties, I think. They're very different animals than what we once knew because they don't have to be what they once had to be. Our, the way we communicate with each other, the way we organize ourselves socially and otherwise has changed so dramatically that the political parties don't perform those functions anymore. I mean, our one main Facebook page, I mean, in, on Facebook, we have more friends than either the Democratic or the Republican Party. <laughs> of Maine. Of Maine. You know, this is people don't care about the parties anymore. They don't need them, they don't care about them, and they've become so toxic to most people that they're just not what they used to be. So what's the hope that what you're trying to do in Maine could become a, a real national movement? Well, could you know, the one... The one independent who was elected governor in 2010 was not me. It was Link Chafee in Rhode Island. Uh, and I think we're going to see, if, if, when Angus King goes to the Senate, which is going to happen, and he becomes, as he puts it, a pole in a new tent, there are going to be a lot of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate enough 
who are going to gather around him and who are going to create, I think, a truly strong, moderate caucus. You think they'll leave their party and some of them, I think, will. Some have. Tennis? I mean, Jim Jeffords left his party before he left the Senate. Right. Uh, Joe Lieberman left his party before he left the Senate. And uh, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, Sanders was never in a party. Right. <laughs> right. He's sui generis. I think we're going to see... All New Englanders. Yeah, but I think we're going to see independents... Elect Look, in California today, California now has... Les is from California, I'm motioning to him. He's, a, he's, a, he's had more experience in California politics than just about anybody else in the world. Um, California now has an open primary. Right. You've got two Democrats running against each other in... In, 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 but that's also the result of redistricting one district. But you've got, you've got Democrats running against Democrats, Republicans running against Republicans. You're going to have this more and more in California because they have an open primary. So in the open primary, party identification is sort of your option. And, and whoever the top two finishers are in the primary run in the general election in a runoff. You think that's going to strengthen political parties? Not by a damn sight. And we're going to see more and more of that, I think, over time. I, you know, I, we're ahead of the game in Maine, but we're always ahead of the game. <laughs> uh, questions or comments from the audience, especially from Mainers. You're not from Maine, but that's okay, Dylan. Yeah, Dylan's from Massachusetts. Tell, tell Elliot who you are and what you're studying. You're a sophomore, right? Yeah. Uh, my name is Dylan. I'm a double major in political science and philosophy. And uh, I'm just wondering what your opinion is of kind of smaller parties like Green Party and the Libertarian Party and kind of how can they rise up from where they are? You know, Ron Paul getting kind of shut out of the Republican National Convention. They don't even want to kind of see them. I'm just wondering, are they kind of going to, are independents going to kind of work together with them? Or Dylan, uh, that's a really good, what do you think? Uh, I don't know, I'm a registered independent, but like, I don't really know, I don't really agree. Did you listen to the debate last night? I did. The, the, the independent, I mean the third, oh, yeah. the third. I didn't watch it though, I saw it Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I was driving last night and couldn't find a radio station with songs that were old enough for me to like. <laughs> so, so I listened to the, I listened to the, uh, the, the third-party debate. You listened to Pacifica Radio. That yeah, I did. <laughs> it was moderated by Larry King, who I thought had passed his sell-by The day. same Larry King? <laughs> yeah. Larry. Yeah. It, it was an interesting choice, to say the least. It was moderated by Larry King, and Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate, was there, and Gary Johnson, who was the Libertarian Party candidate, was there, and then there were a couple others from one from a sort of a constitutional states rights party uh, and one from I think somewhere else but I can't remember where and I listened for about half an hour 45 minutes and I turned it off and I turned it off not because I found a better station <laughs> but because they were so shrill and so doctrinaire and abrasive that I just couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, we haven't had a successful third party in America uh, unless you include the Bull Moose Party 
since 1856 when the Republican Party, when John Fremont started the Republican Party. Now, they were very successful and they elected a president four years later. I don't think we have in America a future of political parties as the dominant political organizing mechanism. I don't think that's what we're going to see. I think we're going to increasingly see, and I'm talking about over decades, I think we're going to see more and more sort of, uh, um, you know, pop-up groups uh, organizing in social media around people and ideas and so forth that, that motivate people. I don't think political parties of any sort are where we're headed. Uh, and I frankly think that's good because if, 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 what, if, we move, if, if you look at what's happened in the Congress, and I described it as, and this is important, the, the Congress is becoming a parliament where people vote the party line and there are sort of deals made among the coalitions created among parties. I think that would be, as we've seen it is, in America, a complete and utter disaster. And, and so I, I think that we're headed in a different direction, and I hope we are. Jake. Hi, I'm uh, undeclared politically or academically? You know, I, dis I, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I, I, I agree with you that it's very difficult and that it's not achieved often and that it's achieved, we're talking about the constitutional, a constitutional amendment uh, to reverse Citizens United, and that it's only achieved when there's a, some kind of mass social movement. It's all true. But it's happened before uh, in America. And, and in fact, the more states enact resolutions, the more likely it is that the Congress will end up acting. Uh, I'm no Pollyanna. I mean, this is a hard row to hoe. I just think that this is so important that, it, that, that we're going to turn to it as, an, as a necessary remedy. Now, the other thing I will say is that when I talk in Maine, I mean, in, in you know, sort of political environments and speeches and so forth, um, you know, Mainers are, you know, they're pretty reserved. I get interrupted the only times I ever get interrupted by applause, and sometimes it's just, you know, people standing up and cheering is when I talk about Citizens United. Uh, and I, the other thing I found is that the revulsion against Citizens United and what has happened as a consequence of it is not shared, I mean, it's not 
it's not a revulsion that's shared only in a narrow part of the political spectrum. It 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 across the whole spectrum. I mean, it's Republicans, Democrats, it's a lot of people. Um, and I think the more people understand what its consequences are, the more likely we are to see a movement develop. But I think Jake makes a point about you know why in the good old days Americans demonstrated. They demonstrated for civil rights. Demonstrated against the Vietnam War. Um, Martin Luther King could you know fill the mall in Washington, and people don't oh. seem to be so engaged anymore about any anything in this country. Uh, that's true, and uh, we may have to get more desperate before that happens, but that's, I think, where we're headed. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not, go back and, 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 and let's re revisit just for a minute what I said about the deepening inequities in American society. I really urge you to go read Christia Freeland's article, which was in a week ago, this past Sunday's review section in the Sunday Times, and she talks about what happened in in Venice in the what 17th, 16th century, and 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 what's happening in America today. And she's written a book. A lot of people have written books now about what's happening in America, politically and and economically, that all sort of point in the same direction to the at the causes, but these inequities are by an order of magnitude becoming greater than they've ever been. And as that, as that, as that gap between those of us who have and those of us who don't have widens and widens and widens, I it's hard for me to imagine that there's not going to be a mass social movement arising from it. I just, you know, uh, how, long are pe how long are people in America going to sit around and watch these kinds of inequities develop and deepen? You, you know, I don't know what percentage of your graduating class last year got jobs. Maybe it's higher than most colleges. But I'll tell you in Maine, it's probably a, at best 40%. How long do you think this country is going to sustain a circumstance where, as I said in my talk, machines are getting smarter, people aren't, and people aren't getting jobs? But people, a lot of people, are still getting rich. I just don't think we're gonna, it's going to be sustained. Nina? didn't like it all? What didn't you like?
you know, I think that's great. And we, we have something in Maine called town meetings. Yeah. We've had them forever, and I'm glad that people in Brooklyn are doing that now, too. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not diminishing their importance. I'm, I'm actually serious, but with a tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Um, but here, you know, it, it, let's just play that out for a minute. Um, you say it drives them away from voting. I okay, gives them an alternative. But I think what it ultimately will do is bring them back into the back into the polls. But when they come back into the polls, I would venture to predict that they're not going to come back in organized in political parties. They're going to be organized in groups that have a particular interest in, say, a budget. And that's great. Whatever works. You know, in Maine, we have this tradition of town meetings, which is incredibly important to us. And it, it, as a consequence, we have a very high... Uh, participation rate in voting and, and, and in the democracy. Um, I hope it's a little higher next time. Yep. Um, favoring me. people from Maine, Sandy. I, well, it's, it's hard not to tonight. Yeah, but you're stuck with it. I know. Your, your name was in bold, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know. I'm just, I'm just defending myself. Go ahead. But I, I hope these were your words, because maybe if not, I'll... No, 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 they were mine. They're all mine. You said, in, in connection with absentee voting, you said, quote, in Maine, at least, it appears to be discouraging voter engagement, providing life support to withering political parties, and undermining one of our most enduring and important institutions, end quote. Um, Sure, fair question. Um, what I think I said in that op-ed piece, but it's been two years almost, and what I certainly said today in my talk and what I believe is that there is an important place for absentee voting for people who cannot get to the polls, who are either absent by virtue of being a student at Goucher College who are absent by virtue of being in the military, who are invalid and can't get to the polls. For any number of reasons, there are good reasons to vote absentee. But there's no good reason, in my view, for what's called convenience voting, which is a term of art that refers to a broader scope of absentee voting that starts as early as six weeks before the election. 
Why do you think we have that? I'll tell you why. We have convenience voting because it's one of the rules that the political parties put into place. It wasn't, believe me, it wasn't a partisan measure. It was bipartisan. Because the political parties have lists that enable them, as they did in 2010, to run around the state of Maine saying, don't vote for Elliot Cutler. He's a spoiler. He's Ralph Nader. He's this, he's that. And so thousands of Mainers voted early and later wished they hadn't. Now, when I say it discourages engagement, what I mean is that when you respond to someone urging you to vote early, and you vote early, and you don't pay attention to a political campaign that really now doesn't begin on Labor Day. People begin paying attention second week in October, maybe the first week in October. Sometimes that's after people have voted. And I don't think that's particularly good for democracy. And finally, I meant what I said. I really do believe, and maybe it's just that I'm sort of a, uh, an old fuddy-duddy, but I really believe that the act of going to the polls, standing in line with your neighbors, reinforces the social contract that's the basis of our democracy. I really believe that. I believe it here, and I believe it here. And you don't get that when you vote at home or you go to the polls in Cape Elizabeth on September 30th. I understand that argument. I'm just confused that that's, that's an issue that you're... Yeah, no, I, I understand the argument that, that you ought to make voting convenient. And in fact, I don't really, although it would, I would have to give up my civic, engage, you know, the, the act of standing in line, the so reinforcing the social contract, although what I'm about to say would mean you'd have to give that up. I don't object to, say, voting by mail, which is really convenient. I wouldn't object to voting electronically by computer if you could figure out a way to do it safely and, and so it wasn't open to fraud, so long as it didn't start six weeks before the election. That's the kernel of my objection. Here's a Mainer. Oh, you're old man. He's old man, yeah. And, he, and he's really... Why aren't uh, you back in Portland, Dan? <laughs> I couldn't find a job after I finished from the Musty Portland. <laughs> uh, I, I have about 30 questions, but I'll boil it down to like one and a half. One of the cruxes of your argument was the overturn of Citizens United. To, to have a constitutional amendment means a lot of votes in the Senate, a lot of votes in the House, and a lot of state legislatures Civic 
No, you can do a referendum in Maryland. Oh, is it only is it only for legislation that's that's passed? Yes. Right. All right, let me, let me, Dan, are you still involved with the Green Party? Uh, not really. Okay. Let me, let me try to, let me try to get at, a, uh, I mean, there's a range of issues here. Um, fundamental answer is you got to, people who with guts have to run for public office. And increasingly, I think they ought to run as independents. And they can get elected. I mean, it's not impossible. Uh, and, and I think ultimately that's the answer. Do I think Democrats and Republicans are going to vote against their own self-interest? No. Can I th do I think that they can be pushed in that direction by a citizenry that's aroused and, and, and takes to the streets? Yeah, I do. And do I think it's important that that happen? I think it's critical. But let me say something about clean elections. You're right that the clean elections uh, program in Maine was originally established by Citizens Initiative, but then the legislature wrote the rules. And guess what? The rules end up favoring the parties. The, the Republican and Democratic primary uh, parties, <laughs> right, the Republican and Democratic parties can and do contribute effectively enormous amounts of money to candidates running clean. And now what they've done in this, I mean, the, the, the Arizona case post-Citizens United stripped away the, the provision in Arizona that permitted the state to match the spending of, of traditionally financed candidates by putting additional money in the hands of clean elections candidates. And the Maine legislature had an opportunity to revise the statute in order to fix that problem and still have the same effect of helping clean elections candidates, and they didn't do it because the Republicans wouldn't allow it to come to a vote. Now, in Maine, there's a fellow named Dick Woodbury, who is the only independent in the state Senate. He's probably the most single most valuable member of the state Senate, among other reasons because he's the smartest. Uh, and Dick decided to run for re-election as a clean candidate. He got $22,000 from the state, and there's probably been $100,000 already spent in 
on behalf of his Republican opponent. Um, and there's nothing he can do about it. Some of us are trying to help him with an independent expenditures committee. But I mean, it's, it, you know, look, I, I, the, the, this is a steep hill to climb. It's a long, steep hill. But if you get discouraged about it, and you say, well, we can't get it done, this is only going to get worse. I mean, this is really a crisis of this democracy. And yeah, I think people need to get aroused. Yeah, but I think it's beginning to happen. I mean, I have, I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged. Okay, we'll take Hannah. Pennsylvania has other things yeah, to say for it besides Rick Santorum. Come on. Uh, Well, and and I, I understand that, and that's a superb point. And it's why I tell the story about Muskie and about the Senate not so long ago, and, and it's why I hope Nina teaches that in her classes and other professors here at Goucher teach you about what it can be like, because it can be like that again. Um, and if you look at some states in America, you find less partisanship, less hyper-partisanship than in other states. I mean, there's, uh, you know, but you, what I found most profound about your observation was that people don't want to work for government because they no longer think of government as an agent of change. I think that's right. And I think the other thing that's right is that they no longer think of government as, as something that does what I suggested it ought to do, which is reinforce the best parts of our free enterprise system and mitigate the worst. And uh, that, that, that used to be what we expected from government at all levels. And now, by your own testimony, we don't. And that is tragic. And we've got to change that. And if you, you know, if this doesn't, if those facts don't motivate you to become engaged, God help us. I mean, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I've, uh, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life in one fashion or another, uh, to my wife's everlasting regret. Um, because it, I can't imagine um, letting it go. I just can't. Um, I mean, my, I have too much invested. I mean, my, my, uh, my mother's father. Uh, came to America when he was 12 years old, alone, no money, spoke no English, 
he spent the first seven years of his life as a peddler. He walked a route that was 90 miles each way about every 10 days or two weeks, selling dry goods and notions in the 1890s to people who lived on the side of the road. He had three daughters. They all went to college in the midst of the Great Depression. You know, I mean, I'm going to walk away from that? Not one of you should either. Ethan. Ethan, remind us what you're studying. Really good question, really good question. Um, and, I, and I'm asked that a lot, and I'm asked that a lot about me and about One Maine. Because we describe One Maine, the political organization that I founded, as an organization, we originally talked about it, an organization for moderates. We don't now, we talk about it as an organization for people who believe in prag pragmatic problem solving. Why did we make that change? We made that change because I knew what I meant by moderate. But to Democrats and Republicans, it meant that they weren't invited. It, well, it didn't to them. Sounds um, boring. It's not boring. It sounds like... But to be a moderate sounds well, like... Well, but I'm, I'll come to that. I'll come to that because I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it even more boring. It is boring, okay? Why is it boring? It's boring because by moderate, I mean a moderate approach to politics. My values and principles are probably pretty, uh, pretty obvious from my talk today. They are, most of them are t to the, I suppose, I'm, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative and a social liberal and, you know, I'm, I'm but I believe very strongly in, in opportunity and in the role of government to create it. And I believe in fairness. And when I talk about moderate, I, I mean a moderate approach to politics, meaning people will talk to each other. You know, Ed Muskie and Howard Baker were, were opposites, but they talked together, uh, talked with each other, they worked together, they produced sol solutions to problems together. Um, so, no, I think, I think an independent is just that. I mean, I've had, I've had a lot of support from people who, whose political values and principles are not the same as mine, but who respect my independence and moderation and trust me as a, as a, as a collaborative person. And, uh, and to me, that's being moderate. Do moderates shout? I do sometimes, and I will at you if you're not careful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take one more question. 
to somebody else. Yes, Emery. You must have learned a long time ago. <laughs> well, now all I hear about is how they didn't get like the 60 votes right. to get things done. And it seems to me like even if the, the stoppage of a vote happened in the way I wanted it to, it still stopped political progress. Right. You know, we didn't get something done. And part of being a country and part of having a government that has a process is the fact that we do things, we, they work, but they don't work, we change them, or we reenact something else. Well, and it's actually worse than that because we now have this system of holds in the, in the Senate where a single U.S. senator can keep from a vote uh, any bill, any nomination. I mean, we've got empty judgeships all over America because judges can't get confirmed except for the first week after the previous presidential election. I mean, it's crazy. Those rules can be changed, and they can be changed by the Senate itself. And there's an organization that I, to which I referred in my talk called No Labels, which is trying to make 12 changes in the rules that govern the Congress. That's one of them, the filibuster rule and the holds. Uh, and no budget, no pay is another. I mean, there's a whole series of them. Uh, and you ought to go look at their, uh, you know, they're ver they've got, I don't know, they're approaching a million members nationwide. I mean, this is, you know, this is this is beginning to catch people's imagination. I mean, they they see it's not working, and they're beginning to see the connection between it not working and the state of our economy and the state of our society. They're beginning; it's be, they're beginning to see it, and I think that's going to increase. And I think we're going to see some activity. And if you, God bless you, if you want to, if you if you're worried about this, sign up with no labels. Because they're actually trying to do something about it, and they've got a whole lot of support in the Congress now, too. Elliot, thank you very much. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>